Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Bucciolato, here with my co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And before we get started, I just want to remind everyone to please subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Share our content. Spread spread the good word about our podcast so we can keep on bringing you fresh content. Back to our episode today, I had an idea that we could talk about some of the smaller and medium-sized crime families outside of New York. The five families get a lot of attention, but what about the other families in Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, etc.? And uh, But specifically, I wanted to talk about what is the current status of some of these organizations. Are they still around? Are they functioning? Are they thriving? Because there's quite, there's quite a debate. Right. That's been going on, uh, whether it be in the internet, uh, in chat rooms, and social media, right. uh, and, and it's not just a small debate. It's a it's a firestorm of activity yeah, with, within the within the subculture of of uh, OC nerds and mobologists and amateur mobologists uh, breaking down what constitutes a crime family. Uh, what makes an organization if you have a boss? Yeah, how many members? But you don't have right. any soldiers. Is it still a crime family? Yeah, the hierarchy. So uh, we're going to go kind of city by city and give an update and kind of give our thoughts on uh, where each city stands right now uh, in 2021 um, in the American Mafia. Now, that's well said. And so I think l- let me just set up like these two extremes and then we'll see. We'll talk to our expert co-host here, Scott Bernstein. And who's the, who's the man on the street? He's doing re- the reporting, and he can give us some insight into maybe things are more nuanced and maybe toward the middle. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is like on online that there are these extremes. You have like the mafia fanboys who who think like it's still 1956 that like the, the mafia is still thriving in every corner, nook and cranny of of the United States. But then you, on the other extreme, you have these like uber skeptics that are just like unless it's new york there is no mafia anymore not even chicago not philly and if there are kind of sparks or you know there could be a lot of smoke but there isn't a a five alarm fire so because there's not that five alarm fire aka major indictments or you know sweeping arrests that that means even though there's all this smoke, right? There's nothing to see here. There's not right. Yeah. So you, I I think you get those those two extremes, and and I think it's it's really a case by case basis. Like it it depends. I think some families are defunct, some are thriving, and some it it's more complicated. It's in the middle. So what I wanted to do was run by a list of. Uh, we'll go through e- each example, and um, we'll ask Scott what he thinks in terms of is this crime family fully functional is it on life support exist but it's it's on the decline or is it just it just doesn't exist anymore it's defunct and then scott will present evidence um, well, i'll try <laughs> you you can decipher for yourself of whether or you can decide for yourself of it yeah. if it's uh, well, evidence fair. worthy of uh being admitted into our uh you know our de facto court of law here that's uh, going to make the yeah. the final decision on if these families are still around the court of public opinion yeah. um no so let's start on the east coast because again new york the five families that's that's always the nexus i, I would even say you know 
globally, that's the nexus for if you're talking about Cosa Nostra, because um, it even impacts what goes on in Palermo. But um, there are other well-known crime organizations, crime families on the East Coast, um, and uh, so let's start with um, let's start with um, there's a lot of buzz about Buffalo. Let's start in New York, upstate New York, Buffalo. Original member of the commission. The, right? Mag- the Magadino crime right. family. Significant crime family, at least historically. And uh, for a while, there was that was considered one of those families that just doesn't exist anymore. And I think there's a lot of counter evidence to that. So well, I don't let's even, start with Buffalo. I don't think it's a debate at this point. I think it was something that was a debate for the last 15 or 20 years where the crime family had been written off the page. And there weren't really any indictments and there weren't really many media stories about what the crime family was doing. And because of a number of active investigations by multiple law enforcement agencies, both federal and local in Western New York right now, we know that there is a full court press being put on by the feds on what they view as the current Buffalo mob and the hierarchy of the Buffalo mob, uh, specifically who they view as the boss, Big Joe Todaro, who has never been convicted of being the boss of a crime family and has been very adamant that there is no such thing as the mafia in Buffalo and that he is not a crime boss. In fact, he is a restaurateur. You know, both could be true. He is a, him and his father started uh, La Nova, which is a pizza and uh, Buffalo wing chain that is incredibly successful. One of the biggest, uh, when it comes to, you know, when you go to the the supermarket and you go to the freezer to, to get Buffalo wings, La Nova has, has cornered the market, uh, at least in certain parts of the country. And some people say they, they actually, you know, they brought buffalo wings to the masses. They, they kind of figured out how to, how to market this Western uh, New York delicacy and, and sell it to the rest of the country. And, and now there's, you know, BW3s uh, on every corner in, in every city in America. So they're very successful entrepreneurs, but the belief has been that they've also run the Buffalo Mafia since the late 70s, early 1980s. And like I said, there was some debate there for, for I'd say, the last two decades. But now I think it's pretty clear that the Mafia in Buffalo exists. In fact, it, it might even be thriving. And we have, in addition to these the multitude of investigations of a number of people within the Tadaro within that orbit, uh, they're going after his nephews very, very aggressively um, on drug and uh, bribery, money laundering charges. They're tying the Buffalo crime family into the outlaw motorcycle club, uh, one of the most you know fearsome uh, biker organizations in the world. And we know from wiretaps from the late 2010s that the underboss or the reputed underboss of the Buffalo crime family is a guy named Dom Viola, who's from Canada, actually, became the first Canadian, or according to the federal government, became the first Canadian um, to be named a uh, administrative, uh, to, to be named to an administrative post in an American crime family. And they have him on tape saying that, the, that, that he was chosen amongst 30 people uh, to become Tadaro's underboss and that Tadaro had brought him uh, to Florida and anointed him underboss and that he, he you know, uh, passed the test with flying colors and there were another 30 people that were up for the job 
and or there were another 30 people in the crime family. Either way, we know that there is a organized crime syndicate active in Buffalo. Uh, I would, you know, I'd go to the mat for that. So I think part of this story is that allegedly a DEA agent um, was involved. Bon Giovanni, I think is his name. Yeah, Joe Bon Giovanni uh, is a retired DEA agent that is under indictment right now, I believe, for taking bribes and possibly drug trafficking along with Big Joe Todaro's nephew. Right, yeah, I think he's he's connected to this, or at least allegedly. So one thing that's interesting is you mentioned uh, Violi, that th- th- this is a historically significant name in uh, the history of Cosa Nostra uh, globally, not only Buffalo, but Canada and in Italy or Sicily as well. So when I saw that name pop up, that was really interesting. So Don Violi's dad was Paolo Violi, who was the street boss of the Montreal Mafia uh, in the 70s and was murdered uh, amidst a, a giant power struggle uh, between the Rizzutos and the uh, Violi faction. Rizzutos killed Violi and his two brothers um, and took control of, of the, the streets of Montreal. At that point, Dom Violi and his brother were sent to Hamilton um, to take refuge underneath the Magadino banner uh, as, I believe, as teenagers. Um, and at this point, one of them has, has risen to, to become underboss of the Magadino crime family. The Magadino crime family has always had a, a, a faction and a, a crew that operated in Hamilton, uh, Ontario, which is right across the border. Yeah, and it makes you wonder if, um, to what extent, there was some Buffalo involvement in the violence that's going on there in definitely, Montreal. There definitely is. You know? um, I have very little doubt that the Magadino crime family is playing a role in this, what I would consider the second phase of the Great Canadian Mafia War that is still ongoing. Um, for people that don't know, the, the mafia in Montreal exploded into a giant faction war uh, in the late 2000s. Um, the war is continuing on into the 2020s. It's been uh, going on a dozen years, and you literally have between 200 and 300 fatalities. It's, you know, frank, quite frankly, it's biblical. Um, started in Montreal, eventually made its way to Toronto, and then in the last three years, it hit Hamilton. Um, and I do believe firmly that the, the Magadinos are, are pulling strings behind the scenes with the violence that has taken place within Hamilton. Uh, the Musitano brothers, who had been the, the bosses of the, of the, the Hamilton faction, um, well, kind of their own faction uh, within the Ontario underworld, uh, were considered the, you know, the preeminent uh, crime lords in, in Hamilton, uh, were both assassinated uh, within a couple years of each other, one, I believe, in either 17 or 18, and then one just last summer. Yeah, and it gets really confusing um, because the different sides are, um, first of all, trying to figure out, is, okay, is it, where are we talking about? Buffalo, Hamilton, Montreal, but also there's different ethnic backgrounds like um, Violi, I think, they're, I think they're Calabrese, and the Rizzutos were Siciliano, and so that, that, that added fuel to the fire. Um, and so then, but then... That becomes relevant also in terms of 
like Musitano, they were, I'm pretty sure they were Calabrese. People can, can uh, check us online if that's not true. But um, so then the question is, are they affiliated with the Andragata or Cosa Nostra? Right. So it gets very, I, I admit. I, a lot of layers. Yeah, a lot it's, of layers. Lot, it's difficult to disentangle who, like, you need like a, a score sheet to keep track of who's a on A lot to side. unpack. Right. So, um, but uh, it is interesting. Buffalo is in the news a lot. And so then the counter argument, of course, is, okay, well, you maybe have these guys who are Italian-American who are involved in uh, whatever kind of rackets, gambling, shakedown, narcotics trafficking. Um, but it's it's a coincidence. And there's so no that, formal. There's no more formal structure. Right, right. It's not evidence that's of, what, of that's a syndicate. What, that's what the the pessimists or the skeptics the skeptics would say. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. But it is interesting. You talking about Todaro, like um, mentioning how successful he is, and that's part of he's he's actually fairly public in countering these allegations. And his thing is is I'm the Buffalo Wings guy. Yeah. Like this is insane. Like to say I'm a crime boss. But he was booted out of his union post yeah. in the in the 90s for organized crime ties even though he's never been convicted uh of being an organized crime member. And there was wasn't there a big labor scandal? Yes. And that they, he was involved. <laughs> yeah, and that and that was sort of for the skeptics, they viewed that as the final death blow. They they view that case was what put the Mafia yeah, organization one of, Buffalo out of one of them, yeah, yeah, okay. And then his dad uh, was the boss from I want to say the early '80s till he died in the 2010s, but had I believe he died in 2012, but had been running the family through his son Big Joe uh, since the early 2000s. So we're gonna say, according to the feds, we're gonna say that this is a functional crime organization. Yeah, and I and I also want to state that that to me it. it it exemplifies how reporting on modern day mafia activity or researching it, there's, there's, it's an inexact science. That's a great it, point. It, it's, you know, the, the, because it's a, a, a top secret organization and, a, you know, a private club, if you will, you know, when there are <laughs> promotions, demotions, um, when, when people are inducted, you know, the press releases aren't being <laughs> given out to the media. Uh, no, so it, it, it's counter, you know, it's counter to the whole concept of it being a, 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 an underground society. So I think that this is just, you know, epitomizes the, that, 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 that cloudiness or murkiness where we thought that they were dead for the last, at least the last 15 years. And then all of a sudden the federal government comes in the last year or two, uh, year two or three. And it's not a, it's not a little pebble this is these are boulders coming down the mountain heading into daro's direction where they're just going after his entire inner circle so they obviously believe that Tadaro isn't just a buffalo wing king that he's a buffalo mob king yeah something's going on so you mentioned something interesting about methodology that i, I don't want to digress too much but before we get to another case study but I think that's really important because when you're talking about journalism or academic research into organized crime, like criminological research, quite often we rely upon documents and inter or documents from the federal government, interviews with, with federal agents, but also um, um, information that come from pentiti or informants or, or people that cooperate. People want, some want to call them rats. And you'll see some of the people online like, oh, all you, all you do is you, you look at government documents and, and, and the government, they're full of shit. And, or all you talk to are rats and they're full of shit. 
Well, I, okay, I understand all that, but but where the fuck else are we supposed to get this information from? If you if you're if you're an anthropologist or criminologist, sociologist, if you're a journalist, right? Active mafiosi are not doing interviews or giving press releases, right? You can't do an ethnography <laughs> with a crime family. So, like, yeah, I get it. Like, there's haters. Like, the government's full of shit. Informants are full of shit. But where else? We're, like, as you point out, it's 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 not an exact science. It's difficult well, to I, gather intelligence and information. And I, I know that I always say, oh, I don't want to try to get political, and then I digress into a political statement. But, you know, look at who are. <laughs> Look at our our last president, who was putting who was putting out there into the ether that they you know that the, that our legal system should just eliminate testimony from cooperators. Yeah, it's right. like what? I right. mean, then how are you gonna, then how are you going to end up convicting anybody? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the that's the the argument that you'll hear from the feds is if you're making a case against a drug cartel or a mafia organization, you're not dealing with Boy Scouts and. <laughs> Uh, choir boys. Well, it's ludicrous. You want to think of like these are bad people who have done bad things, but they know they're the ones who know. I'm not saying that, oh, that there aren't people that are cooperators that are lying. I mean, you can't sure. say that. Of, yeah, course, of course, I'm sure that a lot of them are lying, sure. or or parts of their story are are embellished. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not saying that they they perjure themselves on the witness stand and that, that these people are being convicted on perjured testimony, but I'm saying that. You know, you'll never build it, a case without yeah, some of that. It is what it is, right? Um, so, anyhow, I think that was we digress. And if you, and by the way, if you do find out that you were convicted on perjured testimony, there's uh, yeah. you have recourse. Yeah, right, legal recourse. That's yeah. right. So um, let's stay on the East Coast, um, Buffalo, upstate New York. What about New England, the patriarchal crime family? Would you say that's functional on life support or no longer exists? Functional. Um, they have a hierarchy. Uh, the the power in that family has shifted from uh, Providence to Massachusetts. Um, the patriarchal crime family or the New England mafia has always been split between uh, Rhode Island factions and Massachusetts factions or Boston. Uh, the Denunzio brothers, uh, Carmen and Anthony, Big Cheese and Little Cheese, are and their Gemini social club crew in the North End uh, are running the New England crime family today. Um, they were mentored by previous Don's, uh, Baby Shacks Minocchio and, uh, Pete, the crazy horse Lamoni. Um, underboss reputedly is, uh, out of Rhode Island, uh, <clears throat> good looking Maddie Guglielmeni. And, uh, another capo just got out of prison a couple years ago in Providence, uh, Eddie Lotto. Um, so, you know, the family is, is definitely... Still there, uh, not what it once was. Uh, numbers have been dwindling in Rhode Island, where I think you're probably only, you're probably down to less than a half dozen made guys in Rhode Island. If you know, if what we know now is fact, you know, there, you know, again, we there could have been a making ceremonies they were unaware of. Uh, there are rumors that the Boston faction, the Denunzio brothers, brought in a bunch of um, younger guys in the last five years. Uh, a couple names have floated around, including um, one of the Denunzio's younger sons, who was only in his late 20s, early 30s, when he allegedly got his button. Um, but uh, I don't think there's really any question that the uh, New England Mafia is still functioning, and uh, there are still, you know, there have been cases brought in, in recent times uh, both Denunzios went to prison in the last 10 years. Matty Guglielmetti got out of prison 
uh, five or six years ago. Uh, I think the last five or six Boston mob chief figures have, have gone down in cases in the last decade. So there's still a lot of attention being um, uh, put on them by law enforcement. And I, I mean, not to get into semantics here, but I, you know, we're, we're using the term functioning here. So we didn't say thriving. In some cases, maybe it is thriving, like you said, may, maybe Buffalo, but, but we're using the term functional here. So just for like, you know, the skeptics out here, we're, we're not claiming that New England or Buffalo, that again, it's 1956. Yeah. Well, when, when I said Buffalo may be thriving, I'm not saying yeah, by thriving like they were in the golden era. Right, right. I'm saying like thriving for what is, you yeah. know, 2020. Right. Uh, La Cosa Nostra right. landscape. That there's an administration and that there are, there are active members. Um, okay. What about, and, you know, Philadelphia is, um, you know, some of the reporting from like George Anastasia, who I know is, is a colleague and friend of yours, but, you know, for a long time, he's been saying, you know, Philadelphia, is, it's, it's a joke. It doesn't exist anymore or barely exists. You see some of that chatter online. Um, you've done a lot of reporting about Philadelphia. What would you say the functional um, on life support or uh, no longer exist? Uh, I'd say very functional. I'd say very active. I'd say they have been... <laughs> starting to reinvent themselves uh, over the last decade in ways that they should have been doing in previous decades. Um, the Joey Merlino crew, which has run the mafia in Philadelphia since the 90s, were guys that didn't really have any legitimate means of income. Um, they were just making all their money off of shakedowns, drug dealing, gambling, uh, and they were, you know, easy to kind of be picked off by law enforcement. Uh, when he went to prison in the 2000s and had to go serve uh, a little over a decade, uh, Joe Legambi, who's a, a is kind of a statesman, um, is more of a uh, a, pol a politician gangster, someone that is understands that there's a there's there's some finesse. Uh, that that comes, you know, with being a successful mafia don. Joey's been successful. Uh, he doesn't. There's not a lot of finesse there. Uh, he's very in your face, um, and uh, as a result, the, the family was kind of operating in his mold. Now he's still the boss, but he's been much he's been much further insulated in the years since the the 90s. And Legambi was his was his acting boss, and again, they kind of reinvented themselves. Uh, where Legambi was encouraging people to invest in legitimate businesses. So a lot of the guys that have come out of prison in the 2010s, while I believe they're still active gangsters and racketeers, um, they have gotten into uh, some pretty lucrative, legitimate um, uh, endeavors that, I would guess might be commingling with some of their criminal endeavors, but you know makes it more difficult to to pin criminal cases on them. I know that a lot of them got into flipping houses. Uh, a lot of them have gotten into this LED lighting, mm -hmm. I think yeah. it is, which is a big money uh, industry right now. And then I know that there's some real estate investments and investments into some financial firms. So they're they've kind of taken some of the activity off the street 
and, and put it into a boardroom, so to say, uh, so to speak. So bodies aren't dropping like they were in the 80s and 90s because there was a lot of bodies that dropped uh, in the Philadelphia crime family back then. There was a big murder there, though, what, like 10 years ago? Yeah, so the last mob murder in, in Philadelphia most likely was 2012. Yeah. Gino DiPietro was murdered in South Philly, uh, broad daylight. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Nicodemo, who was Skinny Joey Merlino's driver and bodyguard, eventually um, was convicted of that case. But they don't believe he was the trigger man. They believe he was the uh, getaway car driver. Um, there are there's speculation that his protege, uh, Baby Dom Grande, who a lot of people view as the future of the Philadelphia crime family, and but the belief is that Joey Merlino is kind of grooming him. He's in his early 40s right now um, to take over the crime family in the future. That he could have been the trigger man on that hit. Um, the the, the uh, attorney general out of Philadelphia, I believe, said that in open court at Nicodemo's trial. But Grandy's never been indicted or arrested for that case. He's currently facing a drug and racketeering case. But your point is well taken. It's not, not like a, there was an actual war in the 90s. There was an actual war in the 90s, and then even after that war, bodies continued to drop uh, through the early 2000s. Uh, there were a bunch of murders, 99, 2001, uh, 2002, 3. So the DiPietro murder was a... That was an exceptional, in the last 10 years at least, uh, yeah. an exceptional Exception of the rule. I mean, right. yeah. It's so, been pretty stable. Uh, I, I don't really know where that narrative comes from. I don't think it's based in reality that these guys have just disappeared. You know, George, I, you, you know, God bless George. He, he is the godfather, and George brought me into this business, and I would never dispute anything George reported on Philadelphia. And I don't think George has ever reported that the mob in Philly's dead. Uh, George has reported over the last couple of years that there's not a ton going on. And a lot of these guys have started to go in, le in legitimate uh, directions. Um, and I think the, the basis of what he's saying is true. Um, and I think sometimes it gets lost in context um, because people then extrapolate from that, well, George is saying the mob's dead. I say, like, well, George isn't saying the mob's dead. He's just saying that it's changing. Yeah, I mean, back to uh, methodology, I mean, I, I, I would just, you, I think for all researchers, you have to dig deeper. And, um, you know, so like people who talk to people on the streets and people on the streets are almost always going to tell you there is no mafia, that, like it doesn't exist anymore. Well, what what would you expect someone on the street to say? Someone someone who's involved in these things, that's what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to deflect and say like it doesn't it doesn't exist. And then conversely, I would say like law enforcement, I've made the argument publicly in in academic literature that they also overstate. Like so that that's a fair that's a fair counterpoint like like you know if if guys on the street are saying it doesn't exist at all, well the feds sometimes go too extreme the other you know, and say that everyone's a kingpin. There are all these nefarious com criminal conspiracies. And I would say, well, of course they're going to say that because they're trying to make big cases and they want big budgets. So it's challenging as a researcher, an academic, a journalist to navigate through and find out what is the actual, because you have, both sides have their own agenda. 
which is either to overstate or to downplay and try to figure out what's the truth. And, it's not easy. And in fact, I'd say that, well, I shouldn't say in fact, I would guess that we will know more uh, in the coming months to year uh, with what's being rumored as a, a major, another major racketeering, uh, potential racketeering murder case that could be coming um, and dropping at, at the feet of some of the, the, the major players in the Philly organized crime orbit, including Joey, um, but who knows? Joey's just been, he's the luckiest guy in the history of organized crime. You know, he tells people he's got the devil on his shoulder, and, and I believe it. Uh, you know, there's been, these, these rumors have been flying forever. Uh, the one time he got hit with murder charges, he beat him. Who knows? But there are a number of murders from the late 90s, early 2000s that I know that they're trying to get Joey on. One of them uh, being the, the, the Johnny Gong's hit, uh, Johnny Gong's Casasanto, a kind of longtime Joey rival, both in the world of the, the mob as well as in the world of romance. Uh, Johnny Gong's was caught with uh, Joey's wife when Joey's in Ooh, prison. I don't know if we want to talk about that. I mean, it's, that's, okay. that's common knowledge. It's not, it's not okay. a secret. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, it, do you feel uncomfortable with it? We don't have yeah, to yeah, use we'll, it, but yeah, we'll this is a, yeah. that, that ain't a secret. Yeah. That's been in, reported in, in, in a number of publications outside of just Scott Bernstein reporting it. Yeah. Um, and it was no secret that Johnny Gong's dated Joey, uh, or sorry, I should say, dated Joey's wife before Debbie got with Joey. Um, but either way, Johnny Gongs ended up dead when Joey was in prison. Whether or not Johnny Gongs was having any inappropriate relationships with uh, Joey's female companions or not, um, Johnny Gongs ended up dead, and people think Joey ordered it from behind bars. Uh, Long John Martirano, who was a, a longtime soldier under Angelo Bruno and, and Nicky Scarfo, uh, came home uh, in the early 2000s, late 90s, and, and wanted to... Uh, kind of become a shot caller, and, and he was murdered. Uh, Ronnie Turchi, who was a consigliere underneath uh, Ralph Natale, who was uh, one of Joey's uh, front bosses, uh, was murdered after Ralph had, had flipped as kind of a message uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the rest of the city. So there are a number of murders that the, the federal government wants to nail Joey and, and Legambi on, and you know, we'll see if, they, if those actually come to fruition so it seems like things are pretty hot there um right now uh what about let's move down south and then we'll circle our way up well, why don't we go go to go to the other uh other major uh area in pennsylvania oh uh pittsburgh um yeah what's going on with uh we'll stay in pennsylvania what, what's going on in pittsburgh nothing so that that's defunct. that's defunct <laughs> there's okay. no crime family left uh there's uh sunny c and sudi's the only made member i believe that's alive okay um he was a capo uh ran new kensington um came up underneath the the manorinos and, and mike genovese let me ask you was pittsburgh i don't want to spend too much time on if it's defunct but was pittsburgh ever its own crime family or was yeah. it always a faction of like no. scranton or cleveland or something no, like no, that? No, 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 no. it was its pittsburgh own independent... was its own crime family i mean yeah pittsburgh was very powerful La Ra La john john LaRocca and and then mike genovese okay um yeah no they were there i mean they entity. never had a seat on the commission i don't think no they didn't but they were independent yeah they were very powerful okay um so then was youngstown 
part of Pittsburgh then? Youngstown, Youngstown was independent. Youngstown was split between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Okay. okay. Youngstown defunct. Yeah, okay, okay. But, that, I was but, confused by but, that. But uh, dating back to the uh, 40s and 50s, Youngstown was always, uh, you had a Cleveland crew there and a Pittsburgh crew there. Um, and then eventually the Cleveland crew went away and it was just the Pittsburgh crew. Um, and then in the late 90s, uh, Lenny Strollo died. He was the last godfather of a uh, Youngstown, and he was a Pittsburgh guy. So let's, he actually just passed away a couple weeks ago. We'll, we're gonna we'll come back to the Midwest, but let's just let's knock out the South first, then we'll we'll circle back to the Midwest. New Orleans and Florida are. What would you say about those two? Or they used to be historically significant. Traficante in Florida, Carlos Marcello in New Orleans, historically significant big dons. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, doesn't it seem like they're status outweighed their organization, if that makes sense. Like, Traficante and Marcello were more influential than necessarily their organizations. Their, own, their, their organizations were. Yes. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or at least late, later, in, later in their life. Yeah, right. So maybe, like, because those guys held so much weight, it was more important than maybe the size of their Borgata yeah. or something like that. I, I mean, I think there, I would say there are no more traditional organized crime groups um, that are native to those areas operating. That's not to say that there isn't organized crime activity taking place in both of those areas. There's a lot of rumors that uh, the Columbos and the Gambinos um, out of New York have operations in New Orleans. And in Florida, like Florida's kind of always been, yeah. is, you know, kind of a free-for-all. Everyone, yeah. uh, everyone has operations down there. But it used to be everyone has operations down there, and there was the Traficante crime family, right. which was based out of Tampa. Uh, although the Traficante crime family still has, I guess, Vinny Lascalzo, you consider the quote-unquote boss, but if there's no organization, yeah, what, what are you mean? the boss of? Right. So Vinny Lascalzo was the last identified boss by the federal government, was the last person identified as, as the mob don of, of Tampa. He was Santos Traficante's, uh, Santos Traficante Jr., um, who took over from his dad and was actually the more famous uh, Traficante, uh, who sat on the commission and uh, uh, was in power from the, 50s into the 80s. Um, Lascalzo had taken over for him, but I, I don't believe that there is any functioning entity underneath Lascalzo right now. I know, I think Jimmy, Jimmy Valenti uh, was a, a capo or identified in some cases as an underboss, but I don't really think there's much, there's much there. If, and, a, if anything. And uh, Traficante and, and Carlos Marcello, uh, both, both the most, um, I think, infamous for being linked to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We've had Dan Moldea on a few times, and he's, he's, he's convinced that those two, among others, were primary conspirators. Yeah. To, to tra- uh, uh, I'm questioning myself as the expert. Did Traficante have a seat on the commission? I know Marcello did. did. I think he did because remember, there's that also that famous photo 
yeah. when they went up to New York yeah, and they yeah. met with Carlo yeah, and yeah, yeah. Colombo and um so um but it sounds like um those organizations are not uh functional uh I don't believe I don't believe they're they're functioning entities anymore. So let's uh circle back up to the Midwest. We just we just talked about Pittsburgh, but while we were talking about Pittsburgh, you mentioned Cleveland. Um Cleveland strikes me as an organization that is defunct, but what do you think? Is it is it functional on I, life support? Defunct? Where we I don't Cleveland? think it's defunct yet, uh, but I don't think they're really uh, truly functional either. Mm-hmm. I think they're in that kind life of support. middle ground. Yeah. Um, I would have uh, a year or two ago, I would have said they're defunct, um, but I've gotten some intelligence fed to me in the last year from people that I trust, people that are in the know there who claim there is a small organization that is still operating at some capacity, um, mostly gambling, uh, loan sharking, some drugs. But uh, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know if they have a a traditional hierarchy. You know, uh, R.J. Papalardo is is kind of the OG um, who has been... Uh, identified by the federal government as a, a leader in, in, in the Cleveland Organized Crime Group, you know, for a while now. Joe Lusakabachi died recently, but, you know, ha- had kind of moved out of Cleveland and I, I believe had relocated to Pennsylvania. And so I, I don't think it's dead yet, but I think it's heading in that direction. You know, Cleveland is is an interesting situation like Detroit. Maybe that can be our next case study um, where... Unlike, um, you know, like like Boston, New York, where Philadelphia, where there's still rackets going on in the city, because because you still have Italian Americans, Irish, whatever that live in those cities. Cleveland is sort of like Detroit that was very segregated, right? Like a lot of the white people um, moved out in the '50s and '60s, and so that means including you know racketeers, <laughs> white racketeers, Jewish, Italian, Irish racketeers. And so um, I think about with Cleveland, like it's it's difficult t- for me to imagine when you go to like actually Cleveland to imagine there's any Italian guys uh, involved in any rackets because it's you know it's a very segregated city just like Detroit. But you could have a situation like Detroit where the gangsters didn't go away; they just moved. They just moved, and and some of the rackets were still in the city, but for the most part, they became active in the surrounding communities and neighborhoods. So let let's talk about let's talk about Detroit. Let's where- see Detroit last. Okay. All right. That's the big, <laughs> that's the big, uh, um, if we can't reveal. Just edit this part out. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how about, uh, let's stay in the Midwest then. How about, uh, Milwaukee? Uh, I believe Milwaukee's pretty much defunct right now. If there's any activity there, it's being controlled by the outfit. Mm. Um, you know, uh, PD Pitch, Picurio, who was identified as a consigliere, um, underneath, uh, the Balistrieri family is still alive. He runs a restaurant, but again, just because there's a there might be a figurehead of some sort, uh, if there's no organization underneath him, what does that yeah. really mean? So I don't really believe Milwaukee is is a functioning entity anymore, and any activity there is is with you know in my mind without a doubt um, being controlled by by the outfit in Chicago. Well, you mentioned the outfit. Let's talk about that because I, I think of, like, the outfit, and I think of, like, oh, Chicago probably 
belongs in that conversation with with the five families as as a staple of of the American mafia. But you will read some skeptics online who even call into question the outfit and say the outfit is a, is a shadow of itself. It barely functions. I find that I'm skeptical of the skeptics. Well, you know where all that questioning <laughs> that comes from? You know, it's like the root of all of that skepticism is a list that was put out by the FBI in the early 2000s that listed like 30 names. So all of the keyboard tough guys on the internet that that like to you know puff their chest out um from from behind their computer screen and and make all these very definitive conclusions um based on evidence that i i I question and i'm not saying that that list that was put out of those 30 names i think it's 28 names um wasn't legitimate at the time but i also think it was quite incomplete um so people are looking at that list dwindle uh over the uh, last decade with guys dropping off you know just attrition just guys dying right uh and i think that list is probably you're down to maybe eight guys and so people are being like well there's only eight only eight members left to only eight guys left in the outfit right and i just don't subscribe to, to, to that that school of thought um, I would say that the outfit is still very active. Um, and in terms of modern-day organized crime, I'd say they're thriving. Uh, they have a, a traditional uh, hierarchy and structure. Um, they have a number of OGs left that are teaching the, the, the BGs how to <laughs> go about business. Um, they're very insulated, just like their predecessors were. And they always have connections to police and yeah. uh, lawyers and politicians. It seems like even now. Yeah. And, uh, and to other crime groups. Right. Black gangs, Latino gangs, biker groups. The, outlaw, uh, yeah. the outlaws, uh, biker gang again, which we, we talked about uh, being involved in, in activity out of Buffalo. They're also pretty heavily involved in, in activity out of Chicago. In fact, uh, you know, the mob boss of Chicago back in the 2010 or 2000s, the end of the 2000s, uh, Fat Mike Sarno went to prison in 2010. Uh, his case involved working directly with the outlaws to um, uh, extort uh, video, video video poker machines. And Sarno actually expressed an interest in coming on our show. Yes, well, hopefully we're, we're going to get him. Yeah, he, he's that would uh, be, that would be calling in from prison. Uh, trying to fight for a medical, uh, oh, a, a medical compassionate release. Yeah. Well, he's welcome. On yes, we're, we're going to try to get him on sometime in the future. I've been in conversations with his attorney. Uh, he gave me an exclusive interview uh, during the pandemic, and I uh, was very grateful for that. But, uh, yeah, his case involved uh, uh, blowing up the storefront of a, a video poker machine uh, company that was owned by a rival of his. So, again, when we say... And, and I'm not. This is just repeating what you said. But if we if we say Chicago is thriving again, we're not saying it's 1928. <laughs> we're saying thriving by by today's standards and um, and compared to other you know organizations. And I've heard from again really good sources that there is a entire generation of guys that are now in their 50s, um, guys that were you know teenagers in the 80s. Uh, who, you know, maybe came up as gophers and errand boys uh, for a lot of the, the major players in the 80s. I've heard that there's a, a pretty 
substantial group of guys in their 50s right now that are running the day-to-days um, for the for the OGs. And the OGs are all kind of taking the Tony Accardo approach, uh, the Solid De Laurentiis, the Jimmy Iandinos, the Pudgy Matassas, the Rudy Frados, uh, Albi Vina, who, who is alleged to be kind of the overseer of everyone on the street right now um, for Solly D who's, who's considered the boss. Yeah. That, that they have multiple layers of insulation and that they are acting as co-signers and advisors uh, for these younger guys and pretty much just taking a piece and mediating disputes and, and kind of letting the, the younger guys, feel their way uh, into leadership roles and that there is a group of guys that will take over for the Iandinos and the De Laurentiis and, and the Carusos. Um, and I, I've heard some of them are, are already in place. Um, two guys that I, I'll feel comfortable mentioning, and I'll, I'll say, again, reputed, uh, Nicky Spoons Fariola, who, who went down family in secrets. the landmark Family Secrets case when he was only like 30 years old who's the son of Joe Nick, a.k.a. Joe Nagal, a.k.a. Mr. Clean, a.k.a. Joe the Chinaman, uh, Joe Firiola, who, who was uh, a major player out of Cicero and was either the boss or uh, acting boss of the outfit in the late 80s. His son is one of the guys that I know is being groomed. And uh, Louis Marino's kid, uh, Louis Tomato's kid, Dino Marino, is allegedly being uh, tasked with helping transition to the, to the younger generation. So I don't really worry about the future of the Chicago Mafia. What about surrounding areas, Kansas City and St. Louis? St. Louis is dead and gone. Probably for a while now, right? Uh, I believe uh, for at least the last 10, 15 years, there's, there's, I don't think there's anything resembling a, a structure. I'm not saying, again, that doesn't mean there isn't racketeering going on. Sure. Uh, in, in St. Louis area, and that that's, that racketeering might be being done by guys that had affiliations with the former, um, I guess you'd call it the Giordano crime family or or the uh, Vitali crime family. Eventually, the, the last Truppiano and then Nino Perino, who died at some point in the last decade. But Kansas City, again, I think Kansas City is another example of a group that hasn't taken really any major cases and was written off the page as as dead and gone when Tony Ripe uh, Sevilla died. But from people that I've talked to, both in law enforcement and the street, I believe there is a functioning entity there. It's small and doesn't make a lot of waves and is mostly into gambling and drugs. And it's all a bunch of, you know, OGs, guys that came up underneath the Sevillas. That there is a younger guy, allegedly... Uh, the underboss, uh, Las Vegas Pete Simone, as a son, Joe Pete, and there's a lot of talk that maybe Joe Pete is the uh, future of whatever is left there. He's in his early 50s, and there's speculation that he has a button. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, I, I take it. He's from- an act. He's actually someone who's like uh, out on uh, on YouTube as like you know, like acting in in some like low budget uh, TV and and film stuff. So, I mean, take it for what it is. I mean, Scott is closer to the to the streets. I mean, my research is more like historical case studies and theoretical criminology. But 
When I was doing my training with the uh, National Gang Crime Research Center in Chicago, one of the guys I worked with was um, a guy from uh, Kansas City State Police guy. I, th- I think I gave you his contact information. I asked him, um, uh, are any of the Italian guys still around? And he goes, oh, yeah, they're still around. And he named some of the social clubs. And no, so, they, so, so take it for what – I mean, that was, that's my only insight into, into uh, this particular – I mean, I, I don't remember the name, so I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but that's what he told me when I was in Chicago. I mean, and they're not – you want to talk about, you know, violence of last resort. I mean, there's pretty much no violence. I think the last yeah, suspected uh, mafia hit in, in Kansas City was in the – Late 1990s, um, there was a couple things in the 80s, but, you know, for the last 30 years, there, there might have been one or two mob hits in, in Kansas City, as opposed to a, a city that was killing people, uh, you know, through the 70s and yeah, in, early, in early 80s. It, was, it got pretty bad there. What about, before we move to our final example, which will be Detroit, where we're located, um, any insight into Los Angeles? I, ha- I, I I tend to think that Los Angeles is off the map now. I mean, I, I thought maybe it, it, even 20 years ago, maybe that wasn't the case. But now, I, I'm not I'm not sure there's anything left going on. What what are you What are you hearing from your sources? Yeah, I, I think that it's pretty much defunct. You know, the last boss was was Pete Milano, aka Shakes, uh, came from Cleveland. Kind of, I don't want to say he was a figurehead because he was the mob don, but really his power and his muscle came from Jimmy Catchy, who ran Palm Springs, uh, a Buffalo guy uh, who was widely respected around the country. Uh, Shakes Milano was not so much, was looked at as kind of a, a silver spoon. Yeah, nepotism. Uh, you know, his, yeah. his dad was a, a consigliere right. in Cleveland and had kind of been transferred out of that family when, when that family was getting super violent. Uh, and was kind of sent away to stay out of the Fredo. fray. Fredo, like yeah. <laughs> uh, eventually made his way up to the top uh, with with the um, the Dragna crime family uh, in L.A. But uh, he died uh, in the last decade, and I think there are a couple made guys there. I think that there is some Italian racketeering there. Yeah, I think like New York and Chicago probably still have some guys yeah. out there. And I just don't think there's any organization. There are, like, again, guys from New York that I know that have been operating there that were operating underneath Pete Milano and Jimmy Catchy that I think once those guys died, if there was any tribute being paid, it's just it's no longer being paid. And, uh, you know, there's a guy, uh, Pauly Tattoos, allegedly, uh, who, who's, who's an organized crime figure, Paolo, Paolo Rossi, who owns uh, some tattoo parlors and some nightclubs, um, has uh, traces uh, his roots to Sicily. But uh, I know I know there's a, I believe, a Gambino that's there. Yeah, Rosario Gambino's son, uh, in 2000 or 2001, a congressional committee identified his son as the underboss of L.A. Yeah. But again, that was 20 years ago. Like, what does that mean today? I'm not, I'm not convinced that that means anything, <laughs> means anything yeah. today. You know, I mean, but I I do know, uh, I I might be being redundant here. I do know though that there are a bunch of guys that are New York button guys that have flags planted sure. in L.A. and are doing whatever they're doing, but they ain't sharing with anybody. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's right. separate from the guys I said that were there yeah. kind of underneath the East Coast transplants that were there, underneath yeah. what was uh, the, the semi-functional organization right. with Milano and, and Catchy. But now, uh, you know, there are, are guys from, I think, all the five families that are there and doing whatever they're doing. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of turned into Florida. Well, like Florida, right, you mentioned, like, where, like, yeah, there was technically a crime family there. But even historically, Southern California, you had Detroit guys out there, you had Chicago, you had, even while the Dragna family was fully functional, you still had guys from other organizations out there, and maybe they'd have to cut them in or something, but, like, they, they never had the same kind of, like, uh, hold that, like, uh, a New York family or something like that had, even in their own backyard. So, uh, speaking of Detroit, uh, we get a lot of requests. Um, so, uh, by, by popular demand, what, what's the current state of uh, the Detroit organization? Uh, we get a lot of it's quite a it's quite a hot online. it's quite a hot button topic uh, in certain in certain circles of the internet. Um, and I, I take a lot of flack uh, over the last decade and a half about my reporting. Um, interestingly enough, not from people here in Detroit, but from uh, you know some of these. Uh, uh, I love I love the. And this is another a bit of a digression, but I love the lyric by Drake where he says, "Trigger fingers turn to Twitter fingers." Oh yeah, right. You know, you, right. So you have some of these keyboard gangsters that uh, live in Utah and Wyoming, <laughs> and and want to you know cast dispersions on my Detroit reporting. Um, and you know it's just a it's just a situation where Detroit's just is a is a huge outlier, and. Again, I'm not. I'm not saying that this, the Detroit crime family, the the Tokos really crime family, is anywhere near the level of power and influence that they were in the heyday of the of the 50s and 60s and 70s. But there's still an organization here. It's still functional. It still has uh, uh, plays a, a what I consider a pretty big impact um, on day to day life here in Metro Detroit. Um, but it's an impact that I don't think a lot of people know about because it's not reported on by the mainstream media. I believe that the mainstream media is compromised. Uh, I'm, I clearly have a, a dog in this fight, so I'm not the most objective. But um, there's a lot of activity to be reported on if, if, if people want to do their due diligence and report on it. And it's not easy reporting. It's not, um, you know, Philadelphia reporting, which is a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, and a lot of uh, grapefruits coming down the middle of the pike that you can uh, send into right field. Uh, the Detroit crime family has always been the definition of stealth and and existing in the shadows and having cutouts for their cutouts and and having guys between their guys between their guys guy the guy behind the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think their numbers are. Huge. Uh, I would guess there's maybe 20 guys left um, that that are are button guys, um, but I think there are a lot of younger guys that are still working for those button guys, and I think there are still a lot of tentacles into major corporate, political, legal. Um, judicial uh, sectors. And uh, again, if people knew 
the, and I'm not going to start throwing out names of businesses that I believe are mobbed up, but like there's a lot of businesses out in Metro Detroit that if people knew who the owners were of those businesses and who the money was behind those owners, they would realize that the mafia here still has quite uh, quite a presence. But when the, the the newspapers and the television stations just stop reporting on them, which they have in the last 20, 25 years, it, you know, it's hard to know that they still exist. And then because they are uh, so good at, at being criminals and hiding their assets and, and um, being able to actively racketeer um, without much attention being given to them, um, there, there isn't a, a, there hasn't been a deluge of cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that um, you know, there's a context to everything, and so if people say, well, you know, you don't you don't see the media cover the Italian mafia that much anymore. Well, that's true, and and it and it is a big contrast when you look at the archives. Scott and I have dug into the archives. If you go back to, I would even say as early as the 1920s, all the way through maybe the early 90s, mid 90s, almost daily there was a story about the Italian mafia. And, and obviously then there was just a sharp, like, like it fell off a cliff. Like it just, that, that just, that after just ga- stopped. After game tax. Yeah, after ga- that just stopped. But there was a racketeering case after game tax. Oh yeah. That was brought against the reputed street boss uh, of the Detroit mob and a reputed cop on the Detroit mob, uh, Pete Tocco and Jackie Giacalone. And that Jack, and that racketeering case, only Jackie ended up going to trial. But, you know, it was a week long trial that got almost zero publicity and when it was being reported on it was like son of former mobster right like talking because jackie was the son of billy jackaloni who was still alive and active at that time so it was like well you're first of all he's more than just the son of a former mobster and by the way the the, the his father ain't no former mobster <laughs> yeah yeah they, they were, it was peculiar the way they worded that but i mean i i would say that part of it is just the part of it is is I think to Scott's point that like there's some stealth things going on behind the scenes, like like advertisers are I think are, I think are timid about offending some of these mobbed up businesses. But a lot of it is just the business model has changed in in journalism. Like these New York, uh, Detroit News, Detroit Free Press, whatever, they don't have the investigative journalism budget that they did have twenty, thirty, forty. 50. So that like like they do you have to go for low hanging fruit i agree with your yeah. assessment of it it i just don't necessarily agree with the approach it's sure. just like well then just is it unfortunate that you don't have the resources yeah but you know work work smarter not harder yeah yeah no that's a fair yeah that's a fair point and um and 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 to that point shout out to um to uh uh, uh, uh my boy at the Detroit News, um, Mr. Rob Snell, who for the first time in probably 20 years did an expose on the, uh, on the reputed mob boss of Detroit, uh, Jackie Giacalone, which was on the front page yeah. of the Detroit News a couple weeks ago, delving into his tax issues right now. Um, yeah, I was surprised to see that. And, you know, I helped him with that, with that piece, but it was just like that was the first piece of real mob reporting done by a major outlet in this city in two decades yeah and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually i'm um i'm discounting myself because i've written quite a bit for the oakland press yeah, but right right but, but i guess oakland press I, I'm, I'm i'm disparaging my own employer it's not the free press or the news right those are always the two big dogs when we, when we talk about big media those are the two examples but 
you know, a lot of it is it comes down to resources. And I think, you know, if if first of all, as Scott points out, there have been cases made against individual members who we think are either members of the mafia or affiliated with the mafia, even if it's not a sweeping RICO, right? Like, so when they, when they say, oh, there are no cases, that's not true. There, there has been, been a, a no, there's actually been a number of yeah, that's right. smaller cases right. Against a lot over of the last guys. 15 years. Right. One of them wasn't so small. The Dana brothers right. got brought up on a, uh, on racketeering and, a, and attempted murder charges when they beat uh, a rival restaurant owner nearly to death with a baseball bat back in 2009, and then miraculously got away with merely a strip, a, a slap on the wrist. Yeah, and, and there have been, there've been other uh, exa- sort of less dramatic examples, but, but, um, but even if there hasn't been a, a, a big, like, RICO case, but a lot of it, again, comes down to resources, just like with journalism. Like, with federal law enforcement, um, there's a lot of politics going on, and there's a lot of uh, budgeting issues, and... Um, you know, the FBI, you only have a finite amount of resources. What are you going to use those resources toward? Well, it seems like in, in the Detroit area, it's it's two things. One is counterterrorism, which has been the case since since after uh, 9-11, not just here, but every everywhere. And I think a lot of it is they're making cases against uh, municipal corruption in Detroit. And and um, you know uh, labor racketeering things like that. Where they were going after the UAW. I, I suspect the Biden administration is not going to be as, <laughs> as eager to do that, but the Trump administration was. Um, and then uh, they go after black drug dealers. And I think you know a lot of it has to do with by the time that's done, there's not much left in terms of manpower <laughs> budget to go after you know, the Italians or whoever else is left. Yeah, and they're not know? dropping bodies again. Right, right, like, there's right. been... They stay low-key. You know, there's probably been two or three mob murders in Detroit in the last 20 years. Um, one of them is a, a confirmed mob hit from 02. Uh, the other two uh, are, are speculated to be mob hits. And there's a couple other ones that, that people have looked into as having possible organized crime ties. But and as a general rule violence isn't really being um, meted out <laughs> with the exception being the Dana brothers going all Joe DiMaggio on uh, the owner of known as Italian uh, kitchen. Yeah. I mean, I think, and also just there's cultural differences. Like um, we've had FBI people on before. They can give better insight than me, but you know, if you're, if you're in New York or Philly, Chicago, you're an FBI agent, you you can make your career by going after the Italian mafia, right? It's still it's still front page. Um, Detroit, that's just not. If if you come here and that's your thing, it's just you're not like you're not going to climb the ladder that way. And especially, you don't think they know that, especially so, after nine eleven? Because yeah, right, I mean, right. think about the demographics. That's here. what I'm saying. We right. have the biggest population of Middle Eastern people in the entire country. Yeah. Uh, the biggest uh, percentage of, of middle, middle Eastern Muslims. Yeah. And, you know, the first just the first case, the first case made by the Justice Department um, against terrorist cells after 9-11 was made out of Detroit. Yeah, and, and you look at, again, also Detroit, you know, 90% African-American population. If you're federal law enforcement, what, what's, it, what's it easier to do? Build a case against some shadowy 
old school organized crime group in the suburbs. Or go after the Seven Mile Bloods. Or go after, right, who are who, posting hit lists right. on Twitter and Facebook right. and Instagram. Right. Who are very conspicuous and in your face. I mean, what? I mean, just think about it. Like, so, I, and I, I'm not trying to say that, um, you know, that, uh, that things, like, again, like it's 1956 here in Detroit. I don't think that that's true. But to think that, well, because the media doesn't cover it, the FBI doesn't have a big RICO case, um, therefore it doesn't exist, I think is is really it's flawed logic. decontextualizing yeah. the, the situation. So, um, well, thanks, uh, Scott. That was fun. That was fun. <laughs> I'd say thank you. He's the co-host. <laughs> He's here every week with us. But uh, uh, we hope you like this. This was by popular demand. We, you know, we don't usually break down contemporary situations and organized crime as much, but I know a lot of our listeners want to hear something like that. So um, please uh, subscribe to us and go on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, like our stuff, share our stuff. Please spread the word so that we can keep on bringing you great content. We have some more exciting shows lined up, more guests. Sometimes we'll just, you know, like today, break it down, the two of us. But thanks for listening. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. Scott Bernstein. Out. Oh.